0: All right, tonight we're going to speak on God does not test. And the word is pierzo, test. And so that's what you'll find in the Greek. So there's going to be only two points tonight. And everyone would like to understand this. This would be a concept that if, if everybody could just make it very simple to two points, then we'd have it. So point number one, James 1.13 tells you that God does not test. And the word for test there is pierzo, TTT, temptations, testings, and trials. It's all three. And it's the pierzo, and the uh, translator gets the option of which one of the T's they're going to use. But you'll see these traded out all through the Bible on the testing. So when you read James 1.13, it uses the word pierzo. That God does not pierzo. Now he builds a case, and let's take a look at what he says. He said, Let no one say when he is tested, tempted, or tried, pierzo, that I'm being ttt tempted, tested, or tried, pierzo. I'm just not doing the verb endings to it because uh, the Greek is 64 conjugated Greek verb endings. So, but for God cannot be TTT'd. Tempted, tested, or tried by evil. So therefore he does not TTT anyone. Tempt, (laughs) test, or try. That's, That's a great sentence. So let nobody say. So let no man say. So this is giving you a directive in scripture to tell you don't let anyone say that God is to blame for this. Because we always use evasionary tactics. The real force of being ttt or Pierzo is always we're looking for another source to blame. You know, we want to say, oh, well, it was God that did this, rather than pointing to ourselves or maybe an open door. But this is telling you do not point to God for this. There is sources, but it's not God doing it. And it says that you're drawn away. How do you know when someone's into temptation or testings or trials. They quit coming. They quit praying. (laughs) They get slow on their Bible study. They quit worshiping. They quit being around the fellowship of people that believe. They're drawn away. And that's one of the first signs that you're under this kind of assault, that you're drawn away. James says he justly denies that God is the author of these things. And he says there's no way that God could be authoring this. You can have something, your teeth start to decay. (laughs) Things begin to corrupt in your life. So it says that God did not author these things, that something can be made good, but it begins to deteriorate. And it tells you that God doesn't even have pleasure in it. Like he made man, he made man in his image, but suddenly man began to corrupt. So that makes sense because good things corrupt. And was God happy about it and thinking, oh, I've wanted to kill him for years now. But Genesis 6, 6, I know the 666 was too tempting. But it says that God had no pleasure in the evil. But it said that he was very sorry about the evil. Like, can you imagine God being sorry? And he gives you a word. What's the source of evil? It's a great word. Corruption that things begin to corrupt. So that makes sense because good things corrupt. He was sorry because man began to corrupt. And I mean, we're six chapters in and it's happening. So you see the emotional status of God is that he is very upset about it. There's no pleasure in him about the corruption. So God is not TTT'd with evil. So there's none in him, therefore he has none to give. God doesn't have any any, so he can't give it to you. There's none in him. You'd have to have it to be able to give it. But there's none of that in him. So, he is untemptable by evils. He is untestable by evil. He is untriable by evil. He is not influenced. He's not seduced by evil. Evil does not solicit him. He's holy. And he's separate from evil. Quit blaming him. And quit trying to scripturally interpret that God is the one doing it. So James gives you the path of what happens. Let's just take sin. Sin's the easiest one. It says sin has a path. Lust, and it uses a great word, conceives. Lust gets pregnant. Lust has a sin baby. (laughs) (laughs) that's what it tells you there it gets pregnant and the little baby he's a little sin baby after lust conceives and so this is the path of what happens this is the corruption of what takes place so it ends with the thought very strongly so don't let any man say when he is pierzo that I've been pierzo by God for God is not pierzo with evil so therefore he does not pierzo man with evil And then he adds some kicker to it. In 16, he says, don't be deceived about this. Don't be deceived. He said, my beloved brothers, every good and every perfect gift is from God. It comes down from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And he says, in whom there is no change and no shifting shadows. So he establishes this as unchangeable, that God is not moved by evil. He is not changed. He gives you good and perfect gifts. So if something bad has happened in your life, it is not coming from God. He only has good and perfect gifts. So this is told to you in John 10, 10, the devil tests with harm. And when you look at it, it's escalating harm. It is steal, kill, and then the worst is destruction of a life. So that is not saying that there are not plans out there to destroy your life. You may even feel yourself being drawn towards some sort of failure It's the least, any kind of destruction, something horrible happening. There is definitely a plan, but this verse in John ten ten divides it out And he talks about an escalating evil. So when you look at, like, say, Psalm 91, you know, the word pestilence. It says that pestilence stalks in darkness. And, you know, we've always talked about pestilence. You think, oh, that's Mom said. I thought that was, you know, a bug on my crop. I thought that was grasshoppers in my yard. I thought that was a pestilence. But pestilence means fatal diseases. And so they, they stalk. They stalk after Christians. They stalk to take away your life. It does not make Christians exempt from this. It's just that it's the enemy trying to wipe you out so you cannot do the purposes of God. They stalk in darkness. The, the very fact that it shows the word stalk for pestilence. There's so many different ways we could look at this because it's talking about all different forms of steal, kill, and destroy. But just the way it says that it stalks, it means it's like in secret. It comes to surprise you. It comes to sneak up on you. And darkness shows that it's not seen. It's invisible. People are not even aware of it. Sickness comes on you like you wouldn't even expect it, but it says you can be delivered from the snare of the trapper. So the devil very definitely goes after your life to destroy it. He very definitely tries to harm of how he would trap you in this. But it tells you in Mark 3, 23 through 25, he said, if a kingdom is divided within himself, it cannot stand. If a house is divided, it says it will fall. God is telling you his kingdom is not divided. It does not have good and evil in it. It does not have both that the enemy has the corruption of evil. So we see a strong, strong separation from the kingdom of evil and what Jesus represented on earth. So he clearly comes in and he says to make sure that you're understanding this, he says you've got to understand that if God combined with evil forces, it would cause the whole thing to fall apart. And so James is telling you God doesn't have any inside of him to give. And you look at it and you look at this testing and you look at these trials and you see that when Jesus came to earth, of all things, it's just almost more than you can take in, that Satan had the audacity to TTT Jesus, tempting, testing, betraying. It didn't even make sense. A fallen angel... A fallen being is tempting, testing, and trying Jesus. And it's given in Luke 4, it's given in Matthew 4, and Mark 1. And it talks about that Jesus went through this testing. And Satan was testing Jesus. If Satan is going to test Jesus, guess what? Who he might test (laughs) there's a chance. (laughs) I think he used a little bit more authority and put up a few more (laughs) barriers and had less open doors. There was no sin there. So the temptation itself is not sin. You're not sinning if you're tempted. You're sinning if you let this temptation just sit in your mind and take root and get planted inside of you. So Satan was testing Jesus, and it's hard to believe that he actually could even have a foothold with him because he was perfect. You look at it, if Satan could tempt Jesus, then you're going to see that he'll tempt you in the same regards. Because notice the way he goes after Jesus here. He starts out with a word, if, if you are who you say you are. If you're the son of God. Do you see what uh, way that uh, Satan was tempting Jesus? Oh, you may think your identity's established, but if. You may think you're really walking with God, if. You may really think you're a believer, if. If you're this, then do this. And so the thing that Satan will hit you with is identity. It's an identity attack. It, it was questioning. It's like you've got to prove who you are. And so you see here the temptation the testing and the trial, that it's Satan doing it to Jesus. It's not God. It's Satan. But Jesus, what did he do? He put a stop to it. I love these words. Be gone, Satan. (laughs) Those are great words. You might should use them sometimes. You know, be gone. If you feel this, this thing pulling you, you can say, be gone, be gone. So we've moved through... The different aspects of the nature of God, the character of God, the fact he's not tempting you. Just simply because uh, James is saying you can't make something happen out of a God that has nothing of that to give. You can't say that he's doing it to you because he has none of it in him. And besides that, the only gifts he gives you are good and perfect gifts. Then you've moved into John 10.10 where Jesus said it where he says it's divided, then it goes into Jesus' temptation. And now, let's look in one more place, and it's the book of Revelation. Let's look at the testing of what we're going to endure. There's a testing that comes upon the whole earth, and in Revelation 2.10, it says, God is about to throw some of you in prison and torture you. Is that what it says? What do you mean that's not what it said? That's what we teach in church. God's doing it. God's about to throw you in prison. It's God doing it to you. Nothing happens to you that's not God. God's about to do it to you. I mean, is that not what we read? Is that not what we hear all the time? Revelation 2.10, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison and torture you for your faith in Christ. So even of the understanding of martyrs, it's still the enemy doing it to you. Um, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be TTT, tested. I love this verse. You got a mark in your Bible. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. I like the 10 days. It's so much better than 10 months, 10 years. I mean, I know some people right now that are getting really bad sentences. They need to start claiming this first. Ten days. (laughs) It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. These are those, these are not people who don't know their authority. These different people that have the enemy coming or this, this martyrism coming, these are not people that don't know their authority and the enemy takes them out. These men are not cowards. These are men who fear God more than they fear man. These are the ones that Revelation 2 is talking about. Let's think for someone that I'm sure you've heard of, or maybe you haven't, but it's a, it's a famous story from Romania. And it had fallen to communism in 1945, and they had a meeting of, of 4,000 different pastors. Now, surely in America, this would not happen to us. We we have such strength of character. So let's read about something that took place here. In a meeting of 4,000, one by one, the pastors praised the new regime. Communism had just taken place. So 4,000 pastors, they praised communism. Learned a lot out of World War II, didn't they? And, uh, and out of fear, they said, you know, why are we making this a problem? Christianity, communism, they're the same. They come together. They're, they're, they're the same. Well, guess who was sitting in the audience? Yes, but it was his wife. So yeah, Sabina was sitting in the audience. Man, there's nothing like your wife getting mad. And she's in a service, and she's listening to all these guys praising it. And her husband's turn's next. You know he's praying and asking God what to do. Why did he need to pray and ask God what to do when his wife's about to tell him what to do? (laughs) She couldn't stand it anymore. Now, they were Jewish believers who, who had faith. And she said to her husband, wipe the shame from Jesus' face. Wow. What words? Wipe the shame from Jesus' face. Richard says to his wife, Honey, (laughs) you know what's going to happen. You will lose your husband. You know, a husband knows that's the way to talk to his wife. When she's telling him something like that, Honey, you, you must know that you will lose your husband. Knowing that she would say, yeah, I think you better go to the restroom, do something. You know, surely a wife who loves her her man, I mean, this is going to be fine. She replies, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. (laughs) (laughs) She couldn't live with that. She could live without him, but she couldn't live with a coward for a husband. (laughs) He stood up on the platform, and he let it go. He preached. He says, Jesus Christ be praised, not man. And as he began to give his words, he didn't even get it completely what he wanted to have said before they cut the mic. On the way to church, he was kidnapped by the secret police. He was put into the ground 30 feet down into solitary confinement for years. No one could visit him except the Lord. Sometimes the walls would shake. Sometimes he would hear beautiful uh, music. Christ appeared to him. They put some 200 prisoners together and they tied them to the cross for four days and nights. And they started their brainwashing. 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., 17 hours a day. Communism is good. Christianity is bad. Such a strong message there. (laughs) And they began to say it. And then the worst came with the torture for those who did believe in God. They took the red-hot iron pokers and the sticks, and he said the more they were tortured, the more they love their torturers. Supernatural. This is what we're talking about in Revelation 2.10. We're talking about people that refuse to deny the faith. We're not talking about someone that doesn't know their authority, is weak, has something happen. We're talking about people that stand up in the face of evil. Testings, yes, they're there. And they are more there because we've we've continued to compromise. Revelations 3.10, it says, though, that God has a special thing for those who will endure and not compromise. It's very unique here when he says that he will keep us from the hour, hour of Pierzo that's about to come upon the whole world. He's going to keep us from the hour of testing. So there's promises made. It says, because you've kept my word, I'll keep you. And I will keep you from this testing. It's coming down. Yes, there's testing. It's coming down. It's coming down on the whole earth. So the devil, he uses disguises. He he uses things to conceal who he is. You don't have many people say that when the devil appeared to me, he appeared, you know, wearing red, (laughs) having horns and a forked tail. You, You don't see the devil appearing in the devilish form. So what he does is, he tries to disguise himself in a way that people think it's their God doing it to them. Because you will have no authority And you will have no ability to resist or fight if you think these things that are happening to you are coming from God. You won't have the ability to fight it. So that's the plan. That's why the church is is completely mixed up because they've mixed the two kingdoms together. The devil didn't have to do it. The theologians have done it for us. They have taken what Satan does, steal, kill, and destroy, and they've taken what Jesus said that he does, which is a nice escalating thing as well. And in theology, we've merged them together. And in our merging together, nobody knows who to resist because of the way they look at the Lord. They have this theology that they think that they can eat of the tree of the garden of evil, make Satan their master, hand their authority over to him, and then blame God for what went wrong. Like we have no responsibility or that sin and sickness didn't come in because of what we've done. So we've continued to just make this one power source when we voluntarily handed it over to something that looked like a stick. (laughs) So... I have looked everywhere so I could give credit to the man who told this story in our church. And I've never forgotten it. I've talked to everyone I can think of that was in church during those days and asked them, can you remember who told this story? And no one remembers the man, nor do they remember the story. I'm the only person that remembers the story. So whoever you are out there, I'm giving you credit. But he told this story. And he said there was a man... He lived in a house, and he had a nice big plate glass window at the front of this house. And as he sat in his house, suddenly a baseball came flying through his plate glass window and shattered it. Well, he was so angry, and he went out because this is where the little leagues practiced their uh, playing ball at the ballpark, and it—you know—it was a little distance from his house, but close enough. He had it out with the coach and uh, he told the coach, he said, you run my plate glass window. The coach told him, he said, it wasn't us that did it. The guy was like, okay. He said, we didn't hit the ball in that direction. And the guy was like fuming mad because the coach is not taking responsibility. So he went and he replaced his plate glass window. And it was a few days later, <laughs> happened to be the next practice that sure enough, Here comes the hard ball straight into his plate glass window again and shattered it. Well, off he goes again to see the coach. During practice this time, he goes up to him and he tells the coach, Look, you're responsible for your guys hitting these balls into our windows. The coach says the same thing he said last time. We weren't hitting the ball in that direction. Well, the coach did something new. He picked up a ball, and he said, do you have the ball? And he said, it's a different brand. The ball you have in your hand's is different. The guy, he installs a third plate glass window. Sure enough, you know what happens. Ball comes flying in, and it breaks the plate glass window. But this time, the guy is not angry because he has rigged up a video recorder. <laughs> and he has gotten wiser. So he gets his video recorder. He looks at it to find out anything he can about the ball. And suddenly he sees something that shocks him. A little guy, a little boy, steps out from behind his fence and throws the ball into his plate glass window, smashing the window. He took it to the coach, and the coach knew who it was. They called the police. They located the kid. And what the police found out from the kid was just how much anger the kid had inside of him. Every time there was a practice, he would go around, and he was smashing windows with these balls. What was the story? Kid, well, he had been dismissed off the team. And he was going around the neighborhood smashing windows with balls just at the time of practice. AND LET ME TELL YOU, SATAN HAS BEEN KICKED OFF THE TEAM. AND SATAN WAS KICKED OUT OF HEAVEN, AND HE'S MAD. HE WAS KICKED OUT OF THE GARDEN, AND HE WAS MAD. HE WAS MADE AN OPEN SHOW, PUBLICLY SHAMED, ON THE CROSS. AND HE'S ANGRY. AND JUST LIKE THE RAGE IN THAT LITTLE BOY THAT WENT AROUND, he does things in order for God to be blamed for his anger and what he's done. Revelation 12:12 tells you that I'm telling you the truth on this. It says, as the time grows short, the devil's wrath grows greater. Have you had horrible things, bad things happen to your family? Yes. Are things twisted? Yes. We're living in a time of great wrath. The enemy is mad. And just like that demented little boy, he's going around with his time to shatter anything left in your life. Many, if not most people, are blaming God for what the devil has done. And they haven't had the insight to see who it is doing this to them. So the answer. For point number one is that Jesus taught us to pray for deliverance from these TTTs, from these Pierzo attacks, from these temptations. In fact, every day you should be praying the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6:13. It says, Pray that you will be led completely away from temptations, tests, trials, all this stuff in the morning. Pray, Lord, just make my path a different path. Five seconds can save you. Five seconds can make the difference between one ending to your story and a different ending. And it started not with the five seconds, but with your prayer time where you're asking God, would you please deliver me from evil? I'm praying. That's your answer. Do Christians do this? I'm not finding it. You can go around. They've done surveys of pastors and pastors are one of the worst of getting up and running out the door without praying. And we wonder why did that happen? It's simple. Mark 14:38. Jesus told the disciples, You, you gotta pray an hour. <laughs> Just an hour. I'm asking you to pray an hour. Jesus exactly told us we should ask God to allow us to experience as little TTT with evil as possible. Isn't that shocking that you can literally ask God, let there be less temptations, testings, and trials in my life? I've told you. I was considered a kid that never got into trouble. Look at me. Do you think it's because of my own holiness or saintliness? Do I have the personality to not get in trouble? Answer me, Elsa. We had a familiar thing recognize each other in each other. There's honoriness. But what kept me out of it? Every single night I prayed, God, deliver me. Lead me away from it. It wasn't because I was good. God just lifted me. Every day I was lifted out of one path and put into another. Pray it. (laughs) <laughs> that was point number one. It's beautiful. It's simple. Praise the Lord. I would ask you, pray. Lord, deliver me from evil, from temptations and testings and trials. Put, pick me up put me in a complete different pathway. And Lord, if I must, I'll even pray an hour. <laughs> 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 that I shall be in as little as possible on earth. Point one. Point two, what was point one? Point one, God does not test you with evil. Point two, God tests you. Point one, God does not test you with evil. Point two, God tests you. Some of you were theologically getting worried about me. (laughs) If you can get this fixed in your life, you'll be shocked. What do you mean? I have just proven to you, the little boy, God does not test you with evil. Genesis 22.1. Now it happened after these days that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here am I. Well, maybe this is Old Testament. Maybe the word tested here is a different word. Let's look. Let's look in the New Testament. What is the deal? There's this point, too. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said, Philip, where are we to buy bread for so many people that they can eat? And then it gives you a little hint. Jesus said this to test Philip. Test. Oh, surely it's not the word. Jesus set Philip up. Let's look into the context a little bit. What is Jesus doing with Philip? Why was Philip approached? What does this have to do with Philip? Look at him. He's only one of the unknown disciples. I mean, he's not even... Why was Philip confronted with Jesus' problems? I mean, some of you do me the same way. Why would you confront me with your problems? <laughs> Why would you put this on me? Jesus looks at him and he passes the buck to him. So where are we going to buy enough bread for all these? Oh, Philip, he does it. Philip gives Jesus the dollar amount. You know these type of people. He actually, he, he looks out over the crowd and he does a rough number because he's going to impress Jesus with how smart he is. You know how we do when the Almighty asks us a question. We want to sound smart. The biblical text doesn't prove that Philip appeared to have benefited much from this little exposure. You don't see any great and grand and glorious thing. And The miracle demonstrated Jesus' authority. Yes, it it did over lack and over quantity and over sending people home hungry. You know, Jesus had compassion on them. Well, let's call it compassion. They'd been with him three days and he thought, oops, I think they need to eat. (laughs) We get in trouble with that as Crossline's mission teams. John Douglan once forgot to feed a team for three days, and I still was hearing about it. But look here, this is what Jesus did. He goes, they've been listening, they've been with us three days and they haven't eaten. Sometimes the services can be that good. Sometimes the days on the field can be that good that you actually forget. But now Jesus is looking and thinking, well, they're hungry. So he had compassion on them. Uh, this was a test in Philip's discipleship training, not really Jesus asking Philip, What do I do? Mollussoat, what should I do? I don't think he's really asking Philip for answers here. So, Philip, remember, he's still gazing over, he's still doing his count. So, Philip, his answer is kind of uh, despairing, but it's also calculating at the same time. You know what Philip brings to the table? Common sense not faith. Why would you bring faith to the table? He's practical. He's logical. He's what we do in church provision. We have budgets, and he looks at his budget. Why would we look to faith? I mean, we're just dealing with the Almighty God. We haven't had an answer from him in years. We haven't asked. I I I yet to find a church that doesn't look at their budget. I think this is what is coming across this, so Philip looks across the crowd, he does the numbers in his head, and he gives Jesus his math, expecting to be blessed, complimented. He said this would cost more than 200 denarii. You know, Jesus that's six months of labor, you get it, one man six months. It would take six months wages to feed the crowd this size, and... Before you even think we should pull it out of the kitty, I want you to think about it. It will only give them a crumb. It's not even going to feed them that much. But Philip has made a calculation, but he's left one thing out of his calculation. He's left one little piece of information out. Jesus. (laughs) That's what the church leaves out. It's what we leave out. That's why we don't have trust. We make our calculations. God did not put it in the kitty. It's not there, so therefore we can't do it. And we tell them no. The test. You've got to look at what Jesus did. He sets Philip up for this. How are we going to buy bread? And it says Jesus said this to testing. Sometimes Jesus looks like. We'll put a problem before you, for you to settle, where we have to work with faith, not numbers. (laughs) That he literally is setting you up. Not quite like John 4, go get your husband. (laughs) (laughs) The joy of being a disciple. Jesus has compassion for the crowd, but not for Philip. He has a test for Philip. Maybe you're in ministry, and you're going to be part of the 12, and the test is you're not going to have any compassion ever on people if you don't have the money to do it. You're going to always let money trump compassion. You're going to always give Jesus the wrong answer. You're going to live and serve and call yourself in the ministry and never one time care enough about people or have enough compassion that money's not going to make the decision. How many miracles do you miss because your calculations tell you you don't have the money to do it? And we wonder why the church looks the way it does. Cuz we're counting. Jesus what he said, "Have the men sit down." Now I've I've looked I've looked at where the men sat. I've looked across the waters of the Sea of Galilee, right in that very spot where he broke the bread. I've seen the sea, the sky, and I thought about it. There were so many crumbs left over that day, they had to get baskets for the leftovers. God bless the leftovers. So now I'm asking myself, why on earth would I stand up here and tell you such a A thing is point number one to just in point number two, do what I've done. So let's double check. Let's just double check John 6, 6. Not John 6, 66, but John 6, 6. Is it the same word? Is that what I'm going to do? I'm going to just untwist this and say, well, it's a different word than what James said. Pierzo. Oh, no, lo and behold, it's Pierzo. And what's the deal? Why does James tell you? That God will not test you with evil. And I've just then read you a story of Jesus testing. Because there's one little thing that you've got to circle. To be able to make sure that your theology forever stands the test. God never tests you with evil. Circle with evil. But God will test you and test you and test you and have so much fun testing you, you will never believe how much fun this is going to be. Of course God tests. Of course he tests. But not like the devil. The key phrase is he doesn't test you with harm. Do you still have some of the same emotions? Uh Uh-huh. Are you shaking in your boots? Uh Uh-huh. Are you scared you're going to fail? Could be. God will test you. (laughs) There's so many groups out there, and they'll teach one side of this or the other side. (laughs) But they will not teach you the two-word difference. The difference is God will not test you with evil. But, boy, he'll test you with fun. Think of your crazy uncle. Think of people that put you through the test that were in your family that told you, I love you. Remember these words? I only tease the ones that I love. And the torture begins. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's man's way of doing it. But God, oh, he's genius with his test. So, John 10.10. God does not test you with harm. But he literally blesses your life with life and life abundantly. Is there a test to that? Mm-hmm. If you don't know it, you, you haven't grown enough. You're not mature enough to understand. It's a very interesting life with the Lord. God does not test in correlation with the enemy or with the devil. He is not dividing his house. You've got to learn the difference of who is testing you by the elements of the test. God test, does test you to prove you. The devil tests you to destroy you. Both are true. The difference. Satan tries to TTT to tempt you to fail. God TTTs you to try to strengthen you beautiful psalm 105 19 until the word comes to pass in your life until the promise comes to pass it says the word of god will test you no one looks at it this way we say oh i've got a promise the promise is so beautiful i'll put the promise up on my refrigerator i'll look at it i want beautiful promises i put them up on my facebook it's beautiful it's a promise it's oh no 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 the promise will test you When God gives you a promise, it will test you. Sometimes my uncomfortable gets uncomfortable. The word of God tests you. You know what is testing you? Are you going to believe him? Are you going to believe him? And God enjoys to make it really ridiculous. This is what you need to be doing at your age. Right now, you need to be figuring out what your personal promises are so you know how you're going to be tested. Because God has made you some personal promises. You feel some things about your life that literally there's a chance that your life is going to amount to something. There's literally a chance that something is going to come about in your life that you're going to do the purposes of God. You can almost feel excitement knowing God's doing something with you. You got to know your personal promises because those will test you until they come to pass. God bless Joseph, the one they were talking about in that verse. You look at Abraham. I will give you a son. It's a promise. It should have been a promise to a 20-year-old. But for 25 years the word of God tested him. And though it lingered, his faith did not fail. Abraham was tested by the promise. And then When he received the promise, then he moved up and graduated to the next level of testing. (laughs) (laughs) Testing. The promises in the Bible are tests. If it tells you that you're delivered from pestilence, it's a test. Are you going to believe him? If the Lord tells you a promise that you see that highlights to you, it's a test. It's not with evil. It's with joy. The joy is your strength. The test of the heart. 1 Chronicles 29 17. Have you seen this one? I know, my God, that you test the heart and you are pleased with integrity. What a verse. I know that you will test the heart. God tests to see if what's in you is genuine, if it's real. You don't even know for sure. Sometimes people's hearts, they open up and there's just black stuff coming out. The third test, Exodus 16, 4, In this way I will test them and see if they will follow my instructions. Like Saul being told, wait for Samuel. And Samuel's late. You can get mad and bitter and just go see the prophet, he doesn't even have integrity. Guess who's being tested? You, not the prophet. (laughs) Samuel's late. You're being tested over the instructions, it matters. It mattered to Abraham that he followed God's instructions and didn't end up on Mount Sinai when he needed to be on Mount Moriah. There's reasons for God giving you instructions. Listen to what he's telling you. That's why my new phrase is being, I quit talking when people quit listening. And they go, but you whispered. Your voice wasn't loud enough. Everybody's voice was more commanding than yours. It was compulsive. Doesn't matter to me. It's up to you to listen. It wasn't Saul's thing to say, Samuel's late. You're being tested. Abraham followed the exact instructions, and not only did he do them exactly, but he did them immediately. It didn't seem like he even waited. This is the test of time and patience. If you're impulsive, will be to you. <laughs> It's the test of patience, the test of of time, the test of, listen to these words, immediate fulfillment, immediate gratification. Are you a person that you want it now? We all do. It's the test of waiting. There's provisions in the test. I'd like to think of Abraham's test as not horrible. Now, if you read mom's version of this chapter, it's a horrible test. Only Abraham had to go through it. It only had to be done once in history. Hallelujah, she says. It, it set us up that Jesus was sacrificed on Calvary because Abraham was willing to give up his son on Moriah, and because man was willing, God was willing, and they came together. And it set it up. Man's willingness set it up for God's willingness. That's how mom would tell you. It's a horrible test. Thank God that Abraham went through it, not me. (laughs) But how about if I challenge you and said, it's a wonderful test? It's a wonderful test. Think, first of all, of the provision. I mean, I haven't got to see an angel. And so, first of all, God gave Abraham something he could give to God a son. You go, oh, Horus, I have to give my son. God's the one that gave him. I mean, you know at 90 and 100, God gave him. So first, let's be thankful. God gave you something you have to give. He's not childless. Infertility didn't win the day. He had something to give. He had enjoyed that son many years. Then what else did Abraham have? He had an angel appear. He had an angel that would appear and scream, stop, at just the right moment. I have that same angel in my life. I always have an angel scream, stop, just at the right moment in my life. Whew, I'm glad I didn't say that. Oh, I'm glad I didn't do that. Oh, that was close. I have the same angel. He's always protecting me. Or listen to this. just so happens That God delivers a ram. That swans puts a ram tied in a thicket up there. Waiting so the minute that he's about to plunge his knife and show his willingness. God says, never intended it to be your son. It'll be mine. Put the ram. Because what Abraham had that was provision. That no one could possibly understand. Is he had his God. Abraham's God meant more to him than the short life of his son. And he had built such a relationship with God that he knew God better than he knew Isaac. He knew God better than any aspect of this. Abraham had relationship with God. We're going to hold it there because I'm going to say that in one of these situations of testing, God gives you everything you need to pass the test. God gives you everything you need to keep the test from going down south the wrong way. God gives you everything you need to make it not turn out horrible. God has angels screaming. God has things happening. Realize, and this is what's helped me, this is not gonna wreck my life. This is only a test. It's a test by the emergency broadcast system, and this is only a test. And I would prefer to pass the test at this moment so I don't retake the test. Loosen up a little bit and tell yourself you will never do anything great without being tested. Are any of you scuba divers? 10 weeks, I was a scuba diver test case by a Marine that tried to kill me. (laughs) He said, you're claustrophobic under the water. I will train you out of it. Every day was a test. And you have to realize, I am made to pass the test and have more fun with it. Test. God will test you without harming you. And God will have fun out of the test. Why does he have fun? Because he's not going to hurt you. He's not going to harm you. He has no harm in him. Everything I said in point one is true. There's no harm in God. There is no harm in his test. God will never test you with evil. That is the enemy. God will have fun with you. It says that God sits in heaven and laughs. You've got to try to laugh yourself. I've noticed when men test me, and they do every day. Every day men test me. I do better if I laugh. (laughs) But if I get all crunked, I get to go through the test again. It's the same with God. You've got to have, demonstrate trust. So, he's testing your reactions. He will be testing you that you find out where you are in the faith. Guess what? He knows where you are. He's not testing you for knowledge. Any more than Philip, he's testing you to know where you are in your walk. You're asking yourself, how am I doing on overcoming fear? Not so good. (laughs) How am I doing on walking in faith? Not so good. Some of your tests, you go, not so good. I scream so loud that I... I scared everybody. And it doesn't count just walking into a, a building that's, what do you call it, not occupied, and you open the door and there's a wasp that flies at you and you scream enough to scare the person with you. It, that's not what we're talking about, that kind of a, a, a fear. We're talking about, <laughs> okay, we're talking about where you Pass the test of how you're doing. Don't you want to get where you're not walking in fear? Don't you want to? Enjoy your test. God's letting you see how you're doing. He tests our trust level. He tests whether you're willing to leave your comfort zone. He's testing your willingness, and he proves where we are to ourselves. Like Philip, he tests if we will only do the same thing over and over and over again in life. I wish everyone called to the ministry would go through the Philip budget test and see if one time they could look at something without counting the money. Even if Jesus sets you up and says, where are we gonna buy this? Try to say, oh Lord, only you know. Give him something besides the budget. You've got to learn to trust, or you, we will never do big things with God. We're letting the world pass us up. Whether we have to understand it and always be in the natural to pass the test is exactly where every Christian is. I've just got to understand it, or I can't do it, God. I can't do what I don't understand. Is that true? Is that true? Do you have to understand it, or do you just have to understand Him? Let me tell you the good news. Tests are passable. Remember Psalm 2:4. God's laughing. He sits in the heavens and laughs. He's not laughing at your misery. He's laughing because he's laughing the laugh of faith. Boy, it's hard to get my joy up. I have to read that, James 1. I've got, I've got to have joy and consider this joy. Even when the enemy is testing me, I've got to have joy because I have to have strength. So I get my joy up and I have to I have to choose something at that moment. I either choose fear or I choose faith. And many times, I'll tell you what'll break an assault against you is when you laugh, the laugh of faith, it'll shatter it. Are you willing to go to the mission field when there's no AC, no, recognizable food (laughs) when you ask them what is this on my plate that looks like legs of grasshoppers and they go beetles and you eat what's before you and you bless it only to find out later they were saying vegetables but you thought it was beetles (laughs) vegetables (laughs) 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 and this is the problem that I don't want to be said here I've noticed that there are some people who really get upset over the very thought that God might test them. For some reason, they think it's, it's unkind of him. That's too soft. People who don't like tests, why is it that tests bother you? Can you tonight loosen up a little bit and say, God, I'm willing for you to test me? Because I know the devil tests with harm, but I know you test with good. Don't think that being tested with good is an easy test. I was talking to my new friend, Zadok, about this this morning, and I fell over when I looked at my Bible study, and here was the verse. But we never consider the fact that we think as long as we're tested with good, it's an easy test. Like, test me with a million (laughs) dollars, (laughs) Lord. How do we think that's an easy test? Literally, good, good itself tests you. Good test. It tests you that you don't forget God. And he read the verse. My new friend. Deuteronomy 8, 11, 12, 16. This is that principle because everyone talks about page one of this lesson. Point one the devil test. But nobody talks about good test, And there are some people that have passed the devil's test. But nobody seems to ever pass the test of extreme goodness being poured out on your life. God can't bless us the way he wants to. It would run us. We would corrupt. The Lord says, verse 4, Your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell. You live in a beautiful place. Great landscape. Good houses. Your investments multiply. When you get a job that pays you huge amounts, is what I would say. Verse 13, when you have lots of money. Verse 13 again. And all that you have multiplies. This is not a real faithful time of the children of Israel in history. Nor is it of the church. Nor is it of believers because it says your heart becomes proud and you forget God. Pat and I were talking about this. People forgetting. If people give you wise counsel, you forget who gives you wise counsel. You think it's you. If you make money, you forget who gave you the money. You think it's you. If God blesses you where you have good health, you don't use it for him, you forget God. It's the test of goodness. That is the hardest test you'll ever face. So, the beauty is that God can take the most evil thing that Satan has ever done to you and he can turn it and he can work it for good. I'm giving you three verses, Genesis fifty twenty, Romans eight twenty-eight, and I'm giving you another one that's my mom's favorite. Because you can make up for money, but you can't make up for time. Mm-hmm. You lose time, you can't get it back. But Joel two twenty five says, and I can restore to you the years that the canker worm ate. Only God the worst blow the devil has ever done to you. We serve such a big God that he can take evil and turn it around and use it for good in your life. So don't blame God. If someone gets the nurse gets saved because someone got sick, don't give God credit that he made the guy sick to get the nurse saved. What are we doing with God? He's good. He even touches bad and it turns good if you put it in your hands to those who love him and are called to to his service. Give God credit for being good. Yes, God can take the worst blow the devil did and it can be a testimony to you but God didn't do it. God worked it for good because he's just that good. It's a test. Don't blame him. There's horrible things that have happened. Don't make him the author of them. You know, Richard Wormbrand. right before he died, they took him to see a a printer, and he was appalled. When they took him to see the building, it was this old prison cell, and they were printing the gospel. Neither knew, because God works together for good. Many prayers had gone on in that cell for Romania. So, God's fun if you like high risk. So, I'm going to end with this thought. I want you to tell yourself why testing with God is fun is because you are completely safe when God tests you. Completely safe. I want you to think about this. If Abraham had known that a ram would be there, and be caught in the thicket, and that's what would have been put on the altar, would his test have been hard? If Abraham had known that an angel would be there and grab his hands at just the right time, and tell him to stop, would the test have been hard? Today, I was thinking about this for the first time. What made the test hard? Not knowing. So by knowing God, you can know that there won't be evil involved. It will be not knowing in the sense of it's a test because you don't know how he's going to do it. But guess what? You know him. And that takes the hard part out of the test. You can walk up a mountain by faith when you know that the way God will test you is that every provision you need to pass it has all been put in place. You just got to follow the instructions and get there. Amen. Amen.